So today's date is September 13, uh, 15, 2013. And the title of today's message is Get Yourself Ready. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, Get Yourself Ready. Now, nah, that can mean a lot of different things, but let's first put a scriptural context and then we'll develop it from there. Y'all ready? Now, let me just say, I'm going to be preaching to me, and if by chance I preach to you, I meant it. So, all the things you've confided to me or Eric personally in counseling, I'm going to expose, just not put your name to it. Is that okay? Good, I got everybody's approval. Wonderful. All right, so let's go to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 17. Good to see y'all's beautiful faces, man. I like this perspective. Let me turn there, too. I'm getting spoiled by that thing. All right. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 17. Say there when you are there. Amen. Amen. Get yourself what? Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Now get yourself ready. Mean a lot of different things. But Let's just, say, let's just say, for instance, and I'll use my own house, and here's that example, that disclaimer I gave you earlier, that I may be preaching to myself, but if I just so happen to be talking about you, it's perfectly fine, okay? So let's just say you're sitting around on a Saturday around 10 o'clock, and you forgot that you told somebody to stop by your house to pick something up or to even come in fellowship. Now, you could be in your drawers, you could be in your pajamas, the house ain't picked up from the night before when you had a little get-together. Your house is a wreck. I'm not going to name any names, but I'll name mine first. <laughs> Somebody knocks on the door, and the kids say, Mom, Dad, it's so-and-so, and immediately that calendar event springs up to your mind, much like it does on your phone. All of a sudden, a panic, a rush comes over you. And when I mean by you, I mean you wives. It comes all over you. And the ladies automatically hit this DEFCON 4 mode and all kids scramble, say, pick up every bit of trash, all the socks, get all the evidence clean. Let's wash it down with Clorox if we need to. There's a readiness and preparedness that has not been done because there's a lack of attention to what was happening. So after all the kids scramble, after the wives get things clean, then you open the door. 35 to 45 minutes later, while the person is standing at the door, they're either drenched, soaking wet due to sweat, or standing out in the rain, waiting for you to get your house ready. So, the, the point of the fact is, we all come against, uh, against certain obstacles, certain events that challenge us or require us to constantly get ourselves ready. Right, and I'll put that one in relation so that you ladies could understand, so that you guys could too. That's a struggle that you got to work through. But here's another kind. Get yourself ready. Whenever it comes to confrontation, so, or having to chase after something. And I, How about I just pick on the women a little bit? Guys, y'all good with that? I'm good with that. So ladies wear pants and also skirts, but for those ladies, when you do wear skirts, are you going to chase down your three-year-old across a parking lot full of cars in Walmart with your heels and your skirt fully flowing behind you? Like it's this beautiful scene, you're just taking off at full sprint. What's, ladies, what's the first thing that you do when you have to book it in a skirt and heels? Kick off your shoes. And what's the next thing if you're really good? You grab your skirt. Now do you grab your skirt like this and go, you know, go flailing around? No, you tuck that thing in. Because it gets in your way, it's an obstacle. Now, you can also kick off your shoes if you're getting yourself ready to whoop your child. Because you either use the back end or the front end of the shoe, depending on how bad they were. Sometimes my mama used the back end of the shoe, and that's why I got the dance in my head. <laughs> but the whole perspective is get yourself ready. Now, would you rather get ready before the event happens or have to get ready after it's initiated? Which one? before it happens. So here we have Jeremiah, Jeremiah. He's being called out and singled by the Lord. He, God begins to describe 
what the condition of the nation of Israel was in. They were in sin. They were in open rebellion. So let's skip up to verse 16 and find out exactly where they were. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their what? In forsaking me. In burning incense to other gods. Now we can stop right there and honestly, if we just use those words, that's a foreign concept to us. We do not, well, unless you live in Sugarland, we do not have people setting up idols and bowing down to them openly in public. But let's read the second one. We're going to tie this together. And in worshiping what their hands have made. Lord, I feel the conviction fall in the room. Idols had to be fashioned out of something. Somebody had to make them because they're not gods themselves. And what Jeremiah was being called to do was first get himself ready to be able to deal with this idolatry. You begin to look around in your life. You do a self-examination. You're getting yourself ready. You're kicking off your shoes and girdling up your skirt. And it requires an evaluation. Where are you at with the Lord? But more importantly, what else is involved in your relationship with the Lord? Because you remember the first command. You shall have no other what? Beside me. So, Steve, who's sitting beside you? Is she any further back or further front than you are? She's the exact same place. Our God is a jealous God. No one, nothing is to be exalted above him or, more importantly, seated next to him. We went to India, and in India they serve thousands of gods. And they, depending on what your need, your condition, whatever it is, you choose from this plethora of gods to choose from or to pick, and you put them all on the same level, maybe one a little higher than the other, you really, you know, it's like a, a buffet. You put on your plate whatever you're hungry for. But the God that we serve is, number one, the God above all gods. And he will not tolerate anyone sitting even beside him. So part of getting yourself ready is looking into your life and saying, what else in my life am I putting on the exact same plane, exact same seat, next to Jesus. Now, what's the easiest way to test this? Let's put you in a situation where you have to choose between one or the other. So ladies, let's think back hypothetically to your middle school days. And there's a guy, actually a young man, rather cute as y'all would normally say. You'll never say, he's fine. You'll say that in, in private. You don't say that in public. But there's a young man who's captured your eye. And you can see a little bit of twinkle of capturing in his eye for you. But then there's also another young man that is capturing your eye as well, and your heart is torn between the two. Which one do I date? Which one do I, you know, dress up the nicest for? What's his favorite color? What's his favorite perfume? Which one's going to ask me to prom or homecoming? And all of a sudden, they both ask you, now what do you do? There you sit in the judgment seat to decide where your affections lie. You know why trials come upon us, saints? Because they're constantly testing where our affection lies. Is it with the Lord? Is he truly in control? Or are you still sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning your life? Is someone else, your mother-in-law, your father, the way that it used to be done, a bass boat, a certain structure that is not even yet measured in the word in your life. It's being challenged by trials. That's why we have to consider it pure joy when we stand in the pressings of what life gives us, really what Jesus gives us. It's a joy to be challenged because what the answer should be by a test is that Jesus is Lord. What the answer should be is that there is no other God beside me in your life. This is the part of getting yourself ready. Now, confrontation. This comes naturally to guys. I have four girls, and they like to play this one game called Tackle Daddy. 
That's usually when I lay still on the couch and they go knee first into every area of my body from head to toe. And particularly with the larger one, Natalie, she's changed a little bit in the past couple of years and she weighs a little bit more. Her knees make a deeper impact than they did five years ago. But all it takes for my girls is just a little bit of rustling and tussling back and forth and they're like, eh, and they quit. It's not instinctive in them to come back and fight and just go to the bitter end. But little boys are a little bit different. I find that Gabe and Brenton and several of these young men, all I have to do is walk up behind them, and you know how it is like in middle school. You take that finger, and with everything you got, you just pluck the fire out of the back of their ear. And you, you count how many seconds it takes to turn red, but more importantly, how many seconds it takes for them to turn around and chase you or come at you. All it takes is a slight provoking. And next thing you know, bam, the war is on. What God did to this man, Jeremiah, a young man, in fact, is that he gave him a command. This was a war command. Actual King James. Who has a King James in here? King James says, gird your loins, right? Ladies, this is the equivalent for a man of tucking up his skirt. Now, I'm sure the dress and appropriate nature of the, these times when it was written required that a man wore a garment that was easy to breathe, it was cool, made out of linen, beautiful and costly. But when it was time for a man to go to war, you would begin with this phrase of gird up your loins, protect what is precious, and be ready to move at a moment's notice. You understand me? Getting yourself ready means removing the obstacles that would hinder you from swift and obedient movement as per your commanding officer. Guys, are you ringing with me? Do you have me? You can't be apathetic. You can't be lazy. If there's a central topic I'm bringing all these facets back around to, is let's get rid of being apathetic and lazy. Let's get rid of thinking that we can just stand on the sidelines and watch the war of the kingdom of God versus the dominion of darkness go on and think that we're just buying a ticket to a movie and we're going to be entertained by the outcome. Like, I already know the end. Jesus wins. But guess what? You have a part in it. You have a part in it. Be a man, not apathetic. You know, one of the more convicting elements of the word that has ever hit me is that cowards do not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, someone could almost excuse a lady because I don't expect women to be warriors, at least not physically. Intercessionally, yes. In fact, Miss Suzanne Hall would probably outpray y'all under the table. In fact, she'll be under the table. You'll be on top because she's on her knees praying. But she is the, the largest spiritual warrior with intercession I can ever see. But the point of the matter is, is that we are called to engage. We are called to confront. But we have to get rid of what doesn't belong. Now, what do you call that thing, ladies, that you put on to help cinch in that, you know, that slimming effect? A what? A girdle. Girdle, girdle. So let, let, let's turn to Hebrews 12. We're going to look at some girdles here. Yeah, that's where you hear the gasp in the room. <gasps> A pastor said we're going to look at girdles. No, we're not looking at those. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Say, there when you are there. Come on. Now, look, I love the English language, and I also hate it at the same time. It can be beautiful. It can be majestic and, you know, delicately describe all the details of God. Other times, I just need that raw Hebrew direct nature. What, what does this thing say, man? So you, you read earlier in Jeremiah 117, it said, get yourselves ready. And that's the title of my message. It's absolutely right. But you see when we dove off a little bit into what the Hebrew actually says is gird up your loins. That's kind of hard to preach on a Sunday. I'm just going to skip right over that. So anyway, Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, any idea what the Greek would lend to in the word surround? 
gird. Gird up your loins. What do you do with a belt? You just put it halfway around you, then tie it together? You put it all the way around you. In fact, you surround your body. If, you think, if it's anything like mine, it's very round. You take a belt and you cinch up. Now, those of you who uh, may have a, a nice you know, figure, you guys, we actually have hips that can hold up your pants. You may not need a belt, especially if you're wearing skinny jeans. It's like you poured them on. But if you like me, and you fluctuate between the 34 and the 38, well, there's no telling which one you're going to fit in, so you just wear a belt with it. Cass, what happens to my pants when I don't wear a belt? They fall down. She always gets on to me like droopy draws or show. <laughs> since we are surrounded, since we are encompassed, since we are girded, cinched up, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, what's the next thing? Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Getting yourself ready requires the initial step of repentance. In view of, let's, let's get rid of them shoes. Let's gird up that skirt. Let's throw off, guys, that long sleeve shirt and go back down to that wife beater that you got underneath so you can throw them fists in the spiritual realms. Let's get prepared to fight in the name of Jesus. The second step, when we go back to Jeremiah 117, is to stand up. So, Nolan, it's one thing if a guy comes up to you and begins to verbally challenge you, right? And you're sitting down. And he could be seen as a wonderful man of God if he just sat there and ignored it looked, or looked up at the brother and said, you know, in the name of Jesus, I love you, and I forgive you for that. But if a man just sits there for so long, then somebody else is wondering, where's the real fight inside of Nolan? What does it take to provoke him to actually get up? What's that one button that maybe someone could find that would make him launch and actually jump out of that seat and get ready to do something? I don't know, sometimes we're going to be put in that position, or let me take that back. We will be put in that position in the spiritual realm where God's going to allow something to provoke you. Because sometimes just getting prepared, getting dressed for the fight isn't good enough. This is the equivalent of getting on the sidelines and participating in the game even though you're not there. So, it's football season. Had some major... Teams that played last night, you had A&M and Alabama. I really don't care for either one of them, so I disregard that. But anyway, it's an example. I know I hear some boos in your hearts right now. But football is one of those another analogies that are worn out in FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. But I hold it personal and dear to me because it shaped the character of who I was. It took me from being an apathetic Xbox, or at that time, Atari, playing geek, that was a coward of a young man and put me face to face with confrontation and either said, you're going to join the big boys or you're going to go sit with the losers. One or the other. Now, what you didn't mean you were a loser for not playing football. What it been is there was a challenge. I knew that I could. I had the physical stature to do so and I was being called into it. What it got down to is that there was a team. There were only uh, 11 men allowed on the field. And some teams had 85 on the sidelines. And a team that you respected was when all 85 men on the sidelines were standing up, ready at attention, on the sideline, engaged in the game with their heart and their mind, even though their body was not. Just because you don't have that exact opportunity, that moment, to advance in the kingdom of God doesn't mean you don't need to be paying attention. There's a parable of ten wise and ten foolish virgins. One was ready and one was not. So when we get to the point of, I guess, using the word engage, we have engaged in battle, right? So, Steve, this is that point where a soldier has his armament, he's standing on the front lines. And he is ready at any moment to engage for that commanding officer to say, 
you know, open fire or fire at will. But ladies, that's a little bit hard for you to understand, right? I mean, I love Braveheart. I love Saving Private Ryan, all those things, because it's about manly stuff and warfare and shooting and bloods and guts and stuff. But pride and prejudice is really not my thing. When I say the word engage, what comes to mind? Oh, marriage. Absolutely. So when you are engaged to somebody, is it a half-hearted commitment? Is it a full-hearted commitment? Yes, absolutely. Is there a promise guaranteeing what's to come? What is usually given during engagement? A ring. Exactly. Something to symbolize. Here is what's to come. So let's go back to Jeremiah 1.17. Get yourself ready. Gird up. Stand up. Be engaged. And say to them whatever I command to you. In this process of being a Christian, being a follower of Christ, doing the will of God, it is about preparing ourselves, but also being committed, being committed to do whatever Jesus says for us to do. Ladies, how do you ultimately know a man means what he says when he uh, proposes to you? When he stands at the altar and says, I do, right? So here's a process. You get yourself ready. You stand up and you speak. You say, I do. But I want to dance around stand up a little bit as well. Let's go back to Hebrews 12, verse 1. So therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked for us. Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on who? Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. Now, when me and Miss Cassidy were, I think, about 21, 22 uh, we noticed each other in church. In fact, she was the first one that, uh, that approached me. She was a rather bold and vocal kind of gal. And I was rather quiet and just kind of lay in the background. And she said, you have a nice smile. What are you? Like, what ethnic race are you? I just smiled back and I said, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still waiting on my DNA test to come back. And that began a, 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 a cordial friendship, but then rapidly progressed to a boyfriend-girlfriend kind of thing. But the, there came that point where now just, you know, what's the direction of our relationship? Where is this thing going? And in Jesus, there does not need to be any gray area or ambiguous direction. I had to fix my eyes on Jesus but just so happened that Miss Cassidy was standing right in the line of fire of my eyes because Jesus put her there. When I bought the ring, I had my eyes fixed on Cass. Whenever we were choosing the date and praying for the date to get married, I knew this would be uh, a part of our whole lives, this anniversary we celebrate year after year, that that choice determined how we would spend it the rest of our lives. And we, I prayed and she prayed about fixing our eyes on the covenant that God was going to give us. There came a point when during a Christmas party, I sang a song and the last word of the song was, will you marry me? And her mom had to elbow her rather hard in the side to say, he's proposing to you. <laughs> Obviously, I wasn't speaking to anybody else in the room, especially not the guy in front of her. So I made a public proclamation of my affection for Cass. I became at that point engaged, committed on a pursuit and track of being uh, a, a spouse to her. And she responded with yes, reciprocating that commitment back to me. And there was a ring promising what was to come. You know, in verse one, it says, uh, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. 
This part of standing up and being engaged is having your eyes and ears focused on what God has designed you specifically to do. God's will is not this random pool of fish where we just kind of all swim around and God's just carrying the bucket, you know, from point A to point B. He has specific times, destinations, events for you to be in order that he may display himself through you at that exact same moment. When we give in to our flesh, when we are not ready, when we are not girded up and attention at his service, then we miss those marked places in the race that God has prepared for us. You know, the fivefold ministry exists to prepare God's people for works of service, to train you to hit that race exactly like it should be. Come on, you'll know slalom, you know, whenever you do skiing or uh, water or ice or snow, that if you go around those two little cones, you miss the mark. And you get, I guess, deducted points, right? Well, some of the doctrines that we have to put up with today say that, oh, it's okay. Even though you didn't go between those two cones, even though you didn't run with perseverance, the race marked out for you, it's all right. We're still going to give you a gold medal at the finish line. That is a lie, an absolute lie. That spits in the face of the blood of Jesus. It spits in the face of the very first commandment. It says, you shall have no other gods beside me. You miss that mark because you allowed something to sit beside Jesus, beside the throne of God in your own life. So we got to tear it down. We sang the song earlier, Lord, we cast down our idols. And our idols are those things that we fashioned with our own hands. And look, I've been called out recently, and I love it. I proclaim it here in public. Jennifer was just teasing me, but also calling me out on my own sin, that to borrow that, that white Ford that we have so laboriously waited for over the years, she said, I just want to borrow to go pick up a table. I didn't know this was in me, but apparently it was. The minute she said that, my heart sank. I was like, no, I don't want you to drive it. You may hurt it. What that moment just exposed was how much I love that truck more than I love Jesus, more than I love to serve my sister in the Lord. And it's just to go borrow it for an hour. At that moment, I realized, you know what? My hands have begun to fashion this nice, beautiful little idol in the shape of a Ford 350 truck with a 7.3 and a camper and stick shift. All that good stuff. So at that moment, I had to choose, am I going to throw off everything that hinders? Because at that moment, as minor and maybe insignificant at the moment as it seemed, it could hinder me from being obedient to the race that God has marked out for me. And you would say, how in the world, Matt, can just, you know, holding back the use of a truck for an hour make you miss the mark? of God's race for you because God is a jealous God and he will discipline you like nobody else. He will take that idol and just like all the great judges and kings of Israel did and Judah, he will crush it to bits. Realize that whatever that you exalt, whatever you fashion with your own hands and begin to build in your own heart that challenges the authority, leadership, and headship and direction of your life, God will crush it till it's utter fine dust. To prove the point, there's nobody else that deserves this seat except for me. So when we stand up, we're standing up ready in attention, having removed everything that hinders us from being obedient. Now this was what worship does. This is what reading the word does. This is what sitting here and gathering together and walking through these doors does. It it prompts or provokes that introspection of where are you with the living God? You know, some people walk through these doors, never heard the word Jesus and begin to weep and cry and don't know why. 
and respond with a, a pure heart of receiving Jesus as Lord. Others walk through this door and cannot feel a thing. They are numb. They don't understand why everybody else is so moved by the message or by the, the music that they just can't engage like the other people do because you haven't removed the idol that is standing in God's way of being the only authority in your life. Or you get to the point where you begin to, to fake it hoping to cover over the idol that is really there. So we have to deal with those issues. You have to confront the idols that are in your own heart because that's what enables God, enables Jesus to be truly Lord. Let's go back to Jeremiah 1, verse 17. So first we have get yourself ready. Everybody say get yourself ready. The second one, stand up. Say stand up. And say, everybody say, 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 say. So once again, let me pick on myself. I'm a quiet, kind of laid back guy. And for most of my life, I just like to dwell in the shadows of somebody else's leadership. It's where I felt the most comfortable. I had an older brother who just had no problem being bossy and taking charge. And I was just comfortable following his lead. Do, 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 do. Yep, you're going to go rob a store. I'm going with you. Do, 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 do. You're going to go jump a BMX bike off of a 25-foot cliff. I'll do that too, even though I'm six years younger and I'll fall on my face and nearly break every bone in my body. Wonderful. What I did not learn until I came into Jesus, but more importantly, truly began to be discipled when in this ministry, is to learn when to say something. You know, it's one thing to be driving down the road and you see, uh, hypothetically, a man beating another woman. For no, you can tell. It's just nothing but relentless. She doesn't have a weapon in her hand. He's twice her size and he's beating her. You know, it is sin in that instance to keep driving by to turn your head and not do anything about it. But what God has called us to do is when he shows us something, because we are prepared, because we are standing ready in attention, we are ready for that word of God to drop in and we're going to deliver it with power by his spirit. So the rest of the half of this is, say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified of them, or I will terrify you before them. He'll shame you. One thing that God is good at is shaming you in order to teach you that absolute obedience is exactly what he requires. Now, I have four girls once again, and they're a wide variety of personalities. Some have a very hard time speaking. When I ask them a question in a very aggressive and direct tone, they just kind of look at me and go, <laughs> Others can't keep their mouth shut trying to overwhelm me with evidence of why they're not the one that did whatever is wrong. So the important part of this is that part of say is that you are only to say whatever God commands you to say. That sounds kind of familiar, like what Jesus said, right? For those of you who have a 7.3 liter diesel engine hooked to your mouth, <laughs> and you have a hard time keeping it shut, this command applies to you just as much as it does to the person who can't open their mouth shut because it's wired with fear. That ultimately, both of those personalities are driven by the fear of getting it wrong. That if we stand and we are ready and prepared for that moment, but do not deliver the word that God is giving us, we overwhelm it with us, we fluff it up, or we keep our mouth shut when we should speak. We miss the will of of God. We don't run the race that's been marked out and designed for you. 
Let's go to James chapter 4. Start in verse 13. Let me turn there as well. Is everybody still awake? Amen. I'm turning. Come on. Oh. Ah. James chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, does what? Sin is missing the mark. It is not staying in step, in sync with what God has designed you to do. You know, I look around the room and I see a variety of people with a multitude of calls. But let me just say this. You are sitting in this seat right now because God has marked this time this place, even sometimes to your exact seating, because he has a future for you. You know, the, the part of the gospel that is beautiful is that it not only says you are in sin. That's the first step, but it doesn't end there. It says this is where you do not measure up with God's standards. It says this is how that God can help you measure up. The blood of Jesus traverses a, a, a chasm that no man can cross, and that is the sinful nature. He enables us to be like him by his blood and filling us with his spirit. To go from the cross, crucifying our sinful nature with the, the, that, that element of, of dying to self so that we can move into the resurrection power and be filled with the Holy Ghost to be the true representatives of who God is. You know, the get yourself ready part, the gird up, is probably one of the hardest ones because you may be sitting there in apathy or an unchallenged for years. But God is calling you today to get up and get prepared, to get yourself ready. This means evaluating your heart. This means being offended by correction. This means letting the word of God dig and dive into every area of your life and say, this is where you are, this is what I say, and this is what I need you to do. When you take that to heart and you begin to apply it, you put your face in God's word. You say, Lord, change me. Because you know what our flesh wants to say? Lord, accept me as I am and let me stay as I am. But if your heart is saying, change who I am, what's God going to change you into? Something worse or better than where you were? So when someone comes to you with a word of correction, you're to love it. And look, if your nature is anything like mine, immediately your mind begins to spin of, yeah, I know what you're saying in general is right, but this is wrong, that's wrong, and that's wrong about what you're telling me. Therefore, it disqualifies the word. No, it doesn't. God's word is living and active. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Not just our mind. It renews our mind and it judges our heart because it's from our heart that we make all of our decisions. Come on, what comes out of a man's heart is what was within it. One of the best testimonies I've ever heard. Brad, Paul, where you at? Brad was working somewhere, and uh, he was prepared. 
He was engaged, ready to deliver a word, and he said something that was just beautiful and perfect to somebody that uh, was cussing at work. And the guy said a foul, foul word. And uh, he looked over at Brad and said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't mean to offend you. And Brad, being as ready as he was, he said, hey, that's okay. The Bible says that whatever is in a man's heart is what comes out. And the guy just happened to use a certain four-letter word that has to do with the byproduct of human waste. So he kind of put all that together. What's coming out of your mouth is human waste. <laughs> now, Brad didn't say that word, but anyway. The, the heart of the matter is, is that the word of God is given to us to change us, not to accept who we are in order to stay who we are. Let's go back to to Jeremiah 1. Let's go to verse 16 again. We'll read all the way through. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me and burning incense to other gods and in worshiping what their hands have made. Verse 17. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. Verse 18. Today I have made you a fortified city. Everybody say fortified city. An iron pillar. Everybody say iron pillar. And a bronze wall. Say bronze wall. To stand against the whole land. Are any of those three things weak? They're solid. They can take weight. They can take force. He begins with, today I have made you into these things. He never said, I expect you to make you into these things. He said, I have made you. It is a disgrace, a slap in the face to God to deny who he is making you into. If he calls you an iron pillar, well, by golly, even though you don't feel on the inside, you stand up in the name of Jesus and you be an iron pillar because you know that it's not your strength within you that's going to do it. It's going to be his. If you are called to be a fortified city, a home that is rock solid as a castle on a, a solitude rock that nobody can touch, well, then you take full assurance and confidence in the name of Jesus, that that is who God is within you. Praise God, he doesn't leave us where he found us. He brings us further than where we were. You should not be the same person a year from now than you are today. We should always be changing and transforming. You know, that's what makes a living organism living, is that it has components within it that are constantly changing. They're subduing and they're multiplying. The very things that God commanded, charged, shaped, designed the DNA of Adam and Eve are at work even down to the subatomic level. If an atom, when brought to absolute zero, it ceases to move. It is no longer living. Its electrons are frozen in place. This is zero Kelvin, if I'm not mistaken. So at this point, when God's word is cutting into your heart, when he's trying to change you, when the fire of God is trying to get you out of absolute zero and into some movement, he is trying to send you the same call that he sent to Jeremiah. Wake up, get prepared, gather what you need, get rid of what you don't need. If you find that a, a commitment to a vehicle and its payments are choking you out and putting more piercings on your life and stress and grief, put your face before God and say, what do I need to do? I'm finding myself want to protect this idol of an image or prestige. What do I need to do if the Lord says, sell it, sell it? Singles, if there's a relationship 
that is not progressing as it should. And it is challenging Jesus' lordship, exposing your weakness. Hit the pause button. There's nothing wrong with it. We are called to change, but more importantly, to be transformed into God's image. Let's go to Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Jeremiah was being asked by God to offer up his body as a living sacrifice, to be a worship leader. Let me define that. Worship has nothing to do with music. Music is a servant of worship. You can break strings, you can lose sound system, but the thing that we will never cease to do is worship because worship has to do with submitting and yielding our lives to the living God. It is saying, I, here I am, Lord, send me. It is, I want to get prepared. I want to gird up. And be ready at attention to do whatever you ask me to do. This is our perspective. That we're offering our bodies as living sacrifices. Constantly being changed. Let's go to verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Come on, does everybody in here want to hear from God and know his will? Nobody in here in this room wants to get it wrong. Nobody in this room wants to have a legacy of missing God. Instead, it's just the opposite. We want to have a legacy of that is a man of God. That is a woman of God because they consistently do what God tells them to do. And you know it by the fruit that's on their life. When I look at some of the couples and, and, and ministry people in, the, in this, this church, Eric and Jen, Steve and Dee, Charlie and Joe, they have a legacy, a reputation, a name of consistently hammering away until the will of God is done despite the challenges. We're now into the second, maybe even third battle with cancer with Dee Dee. Second. Is she quitting? No, in the name of Jesus. She is standing up and willing to do or say whatever God tells them to do. They're willing to look at a doctor and say, no more test, no more chemo. I know that God has healed me. You are an iron pillar because God is making you that. You are a fortified city. Because of what God is doing, his work inside of you. If you want to do what this couple does, which means consistently get right the will of God, then be willing to do what they have already done. That means, Lord, I will go into the fire. Lord, I will do what is difficult. I am willing, like Jeremiah, to stand before president and pauper and everybody in between in this kingdom and go toe-to-toe -to -toe because you will, will fit me and fashion me to stand against them. And not every single person in this room is designed or called by God to be a prophet that calls out the sin of this nation. But what you are designed by God to do is to be ready and willing to be used however he chooses. You may stand to uh, a class in college. You may stand to family members who do not accept your intense, zealous, cult-like fervor for God. You may be called to stand and just persevere. Come on, think about the iron pillar. Does an iron pillar have to sit there and 
you know, push up his arms every now and then, stretch his legs. It is just one solid core of support. A fortified city is built by a master craftsman that when everybody looks upon it, they go, mm, I don't want any part of that. This is who God can be within you. That Justin, what God can do within you is make you a fear and renowned man of God in the heavenly realms. That when demonic powers are confronted with you in the presence of God in you, they say, mm, I don't want none of that. Come on, the four steps in doing, or the three steps in doing spiritual warfare listed in James is to submit to God, resist the devil, and what's the third thing that happens? The end goal of putting you in an intense, maybe even life-threatening situation based upon the obedience of God is so that the end result is that we see the backside of the devil. We see him flee in the name of Jesus. Every ministry that is at work within this building, within these people, is birthed because somebody had the chutzpah, the courage to go toe-to-toe with the works of the devil and say, no, in the name of Jesus, I am going to destroy them because of who the Lord is within me. Last thing. If this word is something that just doesn't strike you the right way, it's hard to relate to, I really have to challenge you to evaluate what is your relationship with God. Because in that same way that a man is engaged to a woman, there's a promise to come for the relationship. That when it comes time to stand at the altar to put into practice and fulfillment of your commitment, are you going to have cold feet? Are you going to run from the altar of commitment to the living God? Or are you going to keep having this Vegas-style marriage with anything that looks similarly to God, you're just going to marry it, join to it, and run off, divorce it a week later, and find a new one? Which one is it? Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. Choose this day who you're going to allow to prepare you, who you're going to stand up for, who are you going to be engaged to? Who are you going to speak for? You're going to speak for your flesh? You're going to speak for your family members? You're going to speak for the wealth of a job? Or are you going to speak for the living God? Because there's only eternal life with Him and there's death in everything else. Let's stand to our feet.